0: Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra,
1: and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. I viewed myself, and the world wasn't safe. I couldn't trust. And then, of course, I am trash. I'm bad. I'm unworthy. I'm not good enough, which are common, you know, false beliefs that we adopt as children. And so, of course, I attracted men to abuse me. I was raped in college. I was naive, too, you know, I didn't I didn't really understand not to leave my drink with some stranger and they could put something in it but you know I just took those events as well that's what happens to girls like me because you know that's that matches my operating system I'm trash see trashy Mm. girls get raped they dress bad they brought it on themselves you know so I just imploded judged myself for that event
0: And how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, my beautiful friends, welcome back to the podcast. Over on the HEAL blog this week, I'm sharing an important blog post about how growing up in a controlling environment leads to trauma. If your childhood was very controlled, if you had controlling parents, high expectation placed upon you, if you lived in fear of doing the wrong thing, it is definitely worth reading this post. Getting an inside look into what another human has gone through can give you so much insight into your own journey. And the answers to so many questions. The link to this blog post, how a controlling environment leads to trauma, is in the show notes. This week I am speaking with incredible emotional healing educator Janna Wilson. Janna's trauma began in the womb. Her father would beat her mother as Janna grew inside. The trauma continued for Janna as a newborn. Her mother was very young, and for days, she was unable to feed her properly. For years, the abuse from her father towards her mother continued, and so did the chaos. In fact, Janna would go on to tick all 10 boxes on the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test, which is the measure of trauma in childhood. But a life-changing out-of-body experience at age 12 gave Janna an incredible insight. In that moment, she found her voice and she spoke up for the very first time. But even more important was that this experience gave Jana an understanding into why she was here and who her parents really were. Jana has spent a lifetime learning how to heal herself so that she can teach others how to heal and everything she shares in this important episode is deeply valuable. Jana's book, wise little one is her story of healing from childhood trauma. If you would like to win a copy of this book, click the link in the show notes and sign up for my newsletter, Heal. Everyone who signs up before the 9th of June will go into the draw to win. Please join me now for Jana's story. Jenna, welcome to the How My Parents Raised Me podcast. You are an emotional healing educator and meditation teacher and the founder of the Emotional Healing System. You have worked with thousands of clients over the past 20 years, guiding them to heal. You've trained with Deepak Chopra and worked with Brian Weiss, among many others, and you now live off-grid in Santa Fe, Mexico. And I love the idea of off-grid living. You have written a book called Wise Little One, which is the story of your lifelong journey to learning how to listen to yourself and love yourself. It's a fact that trauma can begin as early as in the womb. What was your first trauma? What was happening for you in the womb?
1: Yeah. So mom is depressed. She's, you know, before that, even before she married my father, she had attempted suicide. So she had a you know, lifelong already battle with depression, and she was very, you know, wounded by her own father's death. So now she's she has me at twenty two, my brother at nineteen. And yeah, I, during hypnotherapy training, I saw because, as you know, in precognitive trauma, that we're sentient beings. We're getting fed everything from the umbilical cord. So I was experiencing, you know, she was being beaten by my father while she was pregnant with me. So, and of course, probably very depressed and crying and sad. And I was breech and I had the cord wrapped around my neck. Now I had that information, Don, as an adult, but when I went through my hypnotherapy training, I saw that I did it. Which made sense to me because, you know, it, it, I mean, it was probably, it was pretty upsetting. And I, I write about it in the book kind of, you know, it was poetic really, because I don't really know what I did. Right. But Mm. I kind of describe it in the book. Yeah. Wow.
0: And so how did that very early trauma affect you as a little girl?
1: Well, even so she goes, she comes home and my father's a womanizer and he's an alcoholic. So he's gone and whatever the circumstances were, it was just her, my two and a half year old brother at the time and me a newborn, she couldn't get me to latch. She had inverted nipples, so she couldn't breastfeed me. She had no formula, nothing at home. So for the first three days, not only had I already had that experience in the womb, now I'm born and I'm not being fed. She said I would just scream and fall asleep and scream and fall asleep. My mom shared all these stories with me. And then on the third day, my grandmother arrived and came with milk and formula and and I was okay. And I've, I've observed throughout my life too an anxiety around food. I haven't had really any eating disorders per se, but I certainly get anxious and hangry Mm. (laughs) you know if I'm not eating soon enough or I, you know and I've really had to work with telling little Jana my everything's okay you're gonna get some food we're good like really talking myself off the ledge around food yeah it's crazy how so early those traumas can affect us Mm.
0: and I think that's not something that we've really known about until more recently is it
1: Exactly. I, th-
0: I think, and I think even just as little kids, people are just like, oh, they'll be fine. Terrible things are happening around them or to them. And, oh, they're young, or they'll forget about it. But I mean, the fact that trauma from the womb can affect us, it just says everything about how we should be Oh, right. You know, thinking about having children and raising our children. And you speak in the book about a traumatic event that happened when you were four years of age. Can you tell us about that?
1: So it's interesting. I'm, you know, memory is really subjective, right? And, and it, I think when, you know, research shows that when there's heightened, intense events, we really, because I've worked with clients who say, I have no memories of my childhood. I often say either it was disassociation or or it was boring. Nothing was happening, right? Because those intense ones. I feel like because there was already so much chaos as soon as I was born, I was a bit hyper-vigilant. I had a lot of, you know, there was one time where I fell into the pool and I have the memory of wanting to drown. And I was only maybe, I wasn't even two years old yet, but I was very aware. And then fast forward at four, I wake up in the night. I was often very anxious child, you know, because there was a lot of chaos going on. And, you know, there were some shadows on the ceiling and I got scared. And then I heard voices. I think it was the voices that woke me up. And I went into the living room to find my father straddling my mother on top of the sofa with a pillow over her head, suffocating her. Oh my God. And. I don't know what's going on, right? I'm just a baby really, but I see her flailing her arms and she's really, in muffled sounds. And so I, am I say to my dad, what are you doing? You know, like what, what's happening? And then he kind of is in like this, probably even a blackout, who knows how much he drank, but he looked at me with this kind of evil blank face and he got up and left and she came up, you know, gasping for air grabbed me and said, told me I saved her life and I didn't understand, you know, what had just happened.
0: Oh my goodness. Oh, and that's just terrifying, isn't it? You know, seeing your mother in a position like that and then, and then, you know, that look on your dad's face. I mean, those things stay with you forever, don't they?
1: Yeah. And I was always scared of him. I mean, obviously, right. I'm seeing him abuse my mother and my brother, not when we were really little, but he was mean to my brother he was very doting on me. He had a lot of adoration and, but a little too much. Like he he really pulled on my energy a lot. And I never really felt safe around him. I didn't find out until I was much older as an adult that my mom told me that she had found him on several occasions, changing my diaper and fondling me. Mm. And so, of course, when children are sexualized at such a young age, they act it out. And so I began to act it out, right? I would, and I would get in trouble. So then when I would get in trouble, when I would act it out, whether it was, you know, letting a little neighborhood boy gyrate on me when I'm like five or six years old, you know, strange things. Like I started behave, act out this way. And I, you know, I just, I think that this stigma, this label got placed on me in my family, my aunts, uncles, extended family she's a bad girl. Like she's sexual. She's bad. So of course, pleasure became bad for me. And I adopted that narrative. Of course, I'm a bad girl. I'm bad. Something's wrong with me.
0: Mm. Oh, those labels are so hard, aren't they? The Mm. label it's, it's, yeah, the labels and at eight years of age, you experience another deep trauma. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So right before the one that I'm going to share with you also, I was at school. I think it's, it's, you know, gosh, we send our children to school and we hope that the teachers have their heart in the right place. And I think most of them do, you know, I, I really admire teachers and I'm a teacher myself, but I overheard a teacher telling another teacher that we wouldn't be coming to the parent teacher association meeting my parents because we were white trash. So, of course, I went home and I told my mom what I heard and she went to school the next day and showed him that we were white trash. <laughs> she told him off and gave him some a few choice cuss words. I'm sure I wasn't there, but I heard about it later. But again, another label trash. I didn't, I didn't know what white trash was, but I started to, you know, I'm at that age. I'm developing. I'm third grade. I'm starting to realize, oh, I'm different than other people. Our family's different and so my mom and dad my mom had battered women's syndrome you know she had low self-esteem based on her upbringing she kept letting him come back they divorced after the almost the suffocation she actually divorced him then they got back together she married someone else and that person ended up in prison he murdered someone you're familiar with adverse childhood experiences, the tests, like, you know, there's 10 questions. I answer yes to all 10. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these adults just didn't have a clue that were, you know, attempting to raise us. And so after mom married this man, my stepdad, we had hope, you know, we thought, oh gosh, things are going to be better. He was educated. It was very different, but she sabotaged it, of course, because she still had that addiction. To my father, they had trauma bonded as, as children and they had been together so long. So anyway, she allows him to come back. Another horrific event happened where he beats her and my brother, not me. And it sends her into a mental institution. We're taken away from her for about, about a month that time. She would slit her wrist. I would find her with her wrist slit. My grandmother was kind of my resource. She was the one who provided the safety and security, but mom got out of the hospital, came back. But the interesting thing, Dawn, you know, now I'm an emotional healing educator. I've spent my whole life since my, since I was 19, I got on this path and I'm 57 and I, it woke me up all of that trauma. You know, it's like, my soul was like, I'm here for a purpose. There is some meaning to all of this. And so I would have these enlightened, really mystical experiences as a child, and and I had it in church often when I was really young. But then the first biggest trauma, which is what you've asked me about, is after my mom came out of the hospital, we had to move from this kind of idyllic life that we were living on this fish farm, a tropical fish farm. We had a two-story farmhouse. It was beautiful. I had a dog. I mean, I finally had kind of the life that I, you know, really wanted as a child. And she, you know, left my stepdad and she derailed to the point she let my dad come back. Then she's in a hospital. She comes back. So this was typical. She would go away, come back, attempt suicide, come back. So it was always up and down our life. There was no stability. No, there was nothing that we could predict. So she bought, she rented a trailer for $300 a month and we had never lived in a trailer at this point. So I was very scared. We have big storms in central Florida, big tornadoes, you know, hurricanes, thunderstorms, lightning, and trailers aren't very safe. Right. And so I felt I was, that added even more to my misery and my fear. And so she allowed my father to come back and... Again, she I mean, they were they were crazy, Don. He would put her in the middle of the road with my brother and I and tell her to lie down and drive the car like he was going to hit her and run over while we're screaming. Oh my God. I mean, they were they were they were really mentally ill, both of them. Mm. addiction, mental illness, everything. So she lost her mind again. She put a gun to my brother in my head, a shotgun. And she, wanted to know where we had been because we had been on a visitation with my father and he had a new girlfriend and and you know, I, I didn't understand it. I'm just a child. I'm eight. My brother's ten. You know, later, I found out when I confronted my mom she was in a blackout. So she was diagnosed with bipolar, manic depressive back then and and major depressive episodes. So she would have electric shock treatment and she would, come back from these experiences rewired. Her brain was rewired. We talk about neuroplasticity now. Electroconvulsive therapy is still used and it does rewire the patient's brain. And then she would download in me, Don, like all of this deep truth about, you know, Raymond Moody, near death experiences, Edgar Casey. She would, she was reading things that were considered occult or mystical or, you know, things that weren't mainstream, which me as a child, I just took it as truth, right? I just devoured it. And I often think like, it's so fascinating to me. My mom seems so broken, but in her brokenness, there was a gift that she poured into me and it made me the woman
0: I am today. Wow. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so much going on, isn't there? I Did you yeah. ever... <laughs> Did you ever feel safe in in your childhood?
1: No, not when I was with her or my dad. Definitely not my dad. And he wasn't around much. You know, I never felt, I always, she also made me very hyper aware that somebody could molest me or do something to me. And if they tried that she would tell me what to do and what to, how to behave, to fight, to scream, to, so she, my mom, you know, we're all, wabi-sabi right we're perfectly imperfect as humans and my mom loved fiercely I can remember her I'm a heart math facilitator I can remember as a teenager my mom telling me to come and place my heart against her heart and breathe and she we were activating our vagus nerve feel her love for me like I don't know why I'm getting emotional about it but She passed away last year from Alzheimer's, but, you know, people are complicated. Life is messy. She was, there was so much goodness in her, you know, but there were times where I had to divorce her and not have a relationship with her in my life as I was doing my healing work because, you know, I, I had to reparent myself and being in relationship with her was toxic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a complicated relationship
0: for sure. Absolutely. And, and you can feel that love, you know, the love that she had for you. You can feel that it's, it's there. It's just that it's kind of diluted by so much trauma and so much chaos and so much stuff going on. And, you know, you can see that there was that love there, but
1: yeah. Thank you for saying that Yeah. Yeah, in the book, you know, she, I was her sunshine. I, she called me precious. I mean, her and my dad both really did adore me and dote on me where my brother really was the redheaded stepchild. You know, he was, he really got the short end of the stick and he's struggled his whole life. He's doing good now, but it's, you know, he's been a meth addict. He's been, you can't keep a healthy relationship. You know, he, he's, he's, it's sad, but yeah, it is. we're all on our own path and, you know, everybody's yeah. at their own point of consciousness, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the prologue to your book describes a life changing out of body experience that you had at age 12, which when I read it, it just sounded so beautiful. Tell us about what that experience taught you, or can you explain it a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, so the eight, you know, I was the gun. I went to live with a very wealthy aunt, my mother's sister was very wealthy. So that was even a trauma. I always say that was probably more traumatic than anything else, just because of the way I was treated by them and my cousins. Mm-hmm. I was so less than, you know, I was their in per, imperfect, con- you know, convenience. I mean, they just, they weren't interested in me. They don't think they really understood what was going on at our home. Mm-hmm. They lived in a totally different world. When I went to live with my grandmother, the, that was my safety and secure place, right? She was my everything. And- So I had to go back to live with mom after that, and it was tough. So you figure from nine to 12, I had suicide ideation a lot, I would think about it. I lived in my imaginary world, though, into a future potential that hadn't existed yet. Now we know that's how we manifest, right? So I was doing that all the time, disassociating from my reality, but it was a positive, and Mom had let dad, you know, come back again. I told you there was the back and forth, even after that gun incident. And I, right before I tur- I was 12 years old. It was right before my birthday. No, it was right after my birthday, after my 12th, because I turned 12 in December. So it was in the early part of that year, mom and dad were fighting and my brother wasn't around. And my brother was my security, you know, he would hold me, he would provide comfort. And this time he wasn't there because he was now a teenager and he stayed away as much as he could. And I ran out of the trailer, wringing my hands, crying, you know, Jesus, please save me. I grew up in the Bible Belt. And so we were very fundamentalist Christian. And so that's all I knew you know, it was Christianity. And I felt like I really had a deep connection to spirit because of the trauma. I would just do what I saw them do at church and pray. And, and I was so innocent. I, the Holy spirit would come over me. I would go into ecstasy. I was like roomy you know, doing the dervish. Like I would just go into like an altered state as a child. I could just bring it on through the trauma. And and it's addictive, right? Like you love that feeling of, all oh, peace that passes all understanding. I hadn't had it in a long time until I was 12. So I'm outside, I'm wringing my hands. I hadn't really had a deep connection to spirit, felt very alone and scared, had been thinking about taking a bottle of aspirin again, you know, just want to check out. And all of a sudden... I just, I'm, I'm looking at myself from above and I can see myself. I can still hear my parents screaming and all the fighting, but I feel this feeling of so much love and peace come over me. And then I, I kind of look around, I'm asking in my mind, what's happening? You know, I'm just a child and I look around and it's like, I'm one with the cosmos. I'm like with star nebulas and it's just beautiful. I could still see my little body. I could, but I wasn't there. And I was concerned, but yet I felt safe and happy and at peace. And so I said, you know, what has happened? And I just heard very clearly, those are not your parents. I am, whatever was speaking to me. And that is not your life. This is. And I just saw so much expansion in my consciousness. Everything in that moment just went like blew open. And I just went in again, like into an ecstatic state. And then boom, I was back in my body. It didn't last long. I was like, please don't don't send me back. You know, I was like, if I'm dead, I want to be dead. Like, I don't want to be there. And I later watched a documentary on NDEs, near-death experiences, and a woman who had had a boating accident skiing told the same experience, Dawn. So I think the trauma took me into like a, a you know I got pulled out I think it was just grace that's the only thing I can say just grace just blessed because after that I got my voice and I confronted my dad and when he was you know they were behaving like they were in love after she's sitting there with a black eye and a cut lip and I can't handle it anymore I have to speak about the elephant in the room and I remember I stood up because I knew those aren't my parents. I had been told the truth and that truth set me free. And I, I said, you both make me sick. You're hypocrites. You act like you're in love and look at you, mom. And my dad just blew up. It's the only time he ever touched me. He picked me up and tossed me across that trailer, busted my knee. My mom flew in, grabbed me, got me in the car before he even knew what was happening and, and took me to the hospital to get stitches. and. She never let him back. Wow. It was like the thing. Her seeing him abuse precious time scalabacini had these weird names for me, these little nicknames. I was his, you know, little princess. Like it woke her up.
0: Wow. That's it was the amazing. thing. Amazing. And that was it the did. end. That was the end of the
1: Oh my goodness. She divorced and- him and it was over after that. Not not over with the trauma though.
0: Yeah. It was, there was
1: more trauma to come, but you know, I was already a teenager by then and I was able to manage it and get, you know.
0: Oh my God, what a story. And I also think it's, it's almost like your mom could take all that abuse for herself, but she couldn't take it for her child, you know, like as soon as she sees it happening to somebody else, it's like, well,
1: but she saw him do it to my brother. Mm. You know, it was something about me and a girl, the girl and the, you know, I, it was, there was definitely, it breaks my heart for my brother, honestly, because my mom was very much codependent with my brother because of her guilt, because she, I had, you know, I was treated, you know, much better. Mm. If we had two bedrooms, I was given that bed second bedroom. She took one, I was, and he had to sleep on the couch. Mm. So my brother really endured a lot of, a a lot more. I would even say trauma than I did. Mm
0: -hmm. And I've encouraged him. Mm
1: Yeah, yeah. I've encouraged him to write his story because he's remarkable how he's came out on the other side too, which to me is a testament of both he and I had a very deep connection to spirit. Mm -hmm. He did too, and that's what's got him out of every his addiction to drugs. And he lives a very happy, peaceful life now. And, but he's very different in his beliefs. He's still very fundamentalist Christian where I share in my story when I got on this path after that, I mean, my mind was, mine once open, can't turn to it, return to its original state. So Mm. I really went on a different path. I still consider myself Christian. I love Jesus's teachings. But I am open to everything. I teach Vedanta. I teach Eastern Indian, you know, mysticism. I don't, you know, adhere to one religion.
0: Mm. And I love that message that these are not your parents. You know, it's like yeah we are all just here playing a role, aren't we? And and we get so, I think people get so attached to these relationships and what we need to do, in you know, to be in this hierarchical system. And, in fact, we're all just souls. We're all just here, you know. Like it's um, incredible to have that experience at 12. And then you sort of get into your teen years and how did it play out for you as a teen, that trauma?
1: Well, in those developmental years, right? Those first seven years I had already shared with you, I had this, I call it the operating system. I like to share this with clients that, you know, our psyche is like an operating system. And sometimes we're still, you know, people are still working on DOS, you know, they've not done any upgrades. And so my operating system was one where I viewed myself and the world wasn't safe. I couldn't trust. And then of course I am trash. I'm bad, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, which are common, you know, false beliefs that we adopt as children. And so, of course, I attracted men to abuse me, I was raped in college, I was naive too, you know, I didn't, I didn't really understand not to leave my drink with some stranger and they could put something in it. But, you know, I just took those events as, well, that's what happens to girls like me because, you know, that's, that matches my operating system. I'm trash. See, trashy Mm. girls get raped. They dress bad. They brought it on themselves, you know? So I just imploded, judged myself for that event, continued, you know, to keep attracting mentors in college, got a job with Maybelline, traveled around the country, learned more on that job than I ever did in college and found a book that fell literally off the bookshelf it was called you by this woman Frances wilshar this is out of date it was written copy in 1935 one of the chapters 1935 can you read
0: that three vital laws the law of attraction oh wow 1935 35.
1: so i was really on this kind of metaphysical path and You know, it was like I was a voracious sponge and all these teachers and all this, you know, teachings were coming to me and I was really growing fast and ended up getting pregnant at 22 and decided to have my daughter. I'd had abortions. I had a lot of shame around that. When I got pregnant with my daughter at 22, I realized this soul, I felt a connection is my teacher. And that she's been my greatest teacher and my only child. And she's, there's a picture of her and I, but, but yeah, it was a, it was a game changer. And I was like, okay, I've been doing the work. Now it's time to really roll my sleeves up and do it because this baby isn't going to do what I say. She's going to do what I do. And I want to make sure I'm a model to her, a role model. And that I inspire her to love herself and be the best that she can. And that's when I started getting into inner child work in my 20s. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a
0: professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Well, that's incredible that you had that sort of insight at 22 years of age, because, you know, usually when you have a baby at 22, you're floundering, right? You, Even whether you've had trauma or not. I mean, it's very young. So at 22, you've been through all of this and yet you've got the ability to say that you're going to do it differently for your daughter and you're, you're, I, yeah. yeah, I
1: wasn't even married. I, I, for the first seven years, I ended up living with my mom and raising her. And it's one of the things I'm passionate about because essentially my mom was a single mom as well is helping single mothers. We give, we have a foundation, we give retreat scholarships to single mothers I really want to support women who take on that and because it's not easy
0: Mm. at all so do you think it was just that you were so open to learning at 22 you're already finding the law of attraction you're already coming up with all of these lessons so young is it is was it that experience at 12 that kind of allowed you to have this idea that there was more?
1: Absolutely. I mean, Mm. that's you don't you don't have an experience like that and come back the same way. Like I said, my mind, everything was so expanded. The truth, when you hear the truth or you, you know, it sets you free. I had a sense of freedom. I would default to that experience. I anything that happened that was negative in my life, I would always default to, oh remember, you, this isn't your life. And what did Jesus say? Be in the world, but not of it. Deepak, my teacher, Deepak Chopra, even when he's teaching the Vedas, you know, the primary thing is we suffer because we don't know who we are in the Kleshas, You know, this goes back 6,000 years. These reasons we suffer. Buddhism was birthed out of it. You don't know who you are. I knew who I was at 12. I knew I wasn't just a human, that I was a spirit having this human experience, and that these earthly parents weren't per se my parents, that, you know, I was contracted with these souls. So I started to know things like many lives, many masters, that book came to me in my early 20s, again, changed my life, because being raised Christian, reincarnation is, you know, obviously, they don't believe in that. And so, you know, but for me, whether we know it's true or not, it's a mystery, it helped me heal because dawn i began to look at myself like well what if this is true what if i chose those parents because i had lessons and maybe karmic debt i owed something from previous lives i paid it now i did all that in my childhood because there's some greater work some greater thing that i'm supposed to get out of those lemons and make the lemonade and do something spectacular with my life i it helped me look at myself dawn through the lens of I'm a badass soul, like not shame anymore. Not like, Oh, I was terrible childhood. And I don't want anyone to know that, you know, it took me a while, even in my early thirties, I was still hiding it. Mm. Oh, I'll just look pretty. I'll drive a nice car. I'll get successful. I'll have money. Nobody will know. But of course, everywhere I went there, I was. So the past was coming with me. So that's what led me to shadow work, which is, you know, a big chunk of the emotional healing system is teaching people how to embrace those stories from their childhood, those identifications, those false beliefs, how to love and accept every part of yourself, right? Light and dark.
0: Can you just explain shadow work a little bit more?
1: I'd love to. So, you know, we live in a world where there's a subject object split. I'm the subject. There's objects. You're my object. I'm your object, right? So we, most people live very object referral, meaning they look outside of themselves for approval, recognition, you know, love everything. If we were all raised self-referral, then our, our reference point would be our soul. It would be, I'm good just because I exist. I'm lovable. I'm deserving, right? So we're not, most of us, you know, raised on that spiritual path with that kind of high level of emotional intelligence. Our parents, you know, let's face it, it doesn't come with, parenting doesn't come with a a book, right? And we're not taught emotional intelligence in school. I wish that would change. But so shadow work is now I'm engaged in a relationship or I'm having something happen outside of me, the objects in another person. And, and we usually say it. we get triggered, our buttons get pushed. There's something that we dislike in someone else. And it usually gets our attention. I do want to say though, it could also be in the light, the positive, like we get really excited. Like, I love the work you're doing. You love the work I'm doing. You and I can project our shadows, our light shadows on each other. We don't because we own them ourselves, but you know there's people that we admire and we oh I wish I could be like them well if you see it in them it means it's a reflection of something within you mm-hmm. that most likely is dormant that you haven't built the muscle in order to you know behave that way or you haven't became that yet that's where we have sayings like fake it till you become it right or fake it till you make it so shadow work is when You know, it's, it's really deep work because you start to look at everybody as a reflection of yourself. And if I don't like you because you're disrespectful and dismissive and I, if I'm doing shadow work, then I would go, oh, wait, I must be disrespectful and dismissive. There's something in me that I don't like it in them and I can't see it in myself. So they're holding the mirror up, right? So then the way Debbie Ford, my teacher who I trained with, she was a New York Times bestselling author. She wrote A Dark Side of the Light, Chaser*, Secret of the Shadow, Best Year of Your Life. She's written a lot of books. She passed away in 2013, but I was very lucky. I was partners with her, my ex-husband and I, and I was on staff and I traveled the world with her and I really learned shadow work. I think from a master, she was really good at teaching it and dumbing it down. So you could understand it in practical terms. And this is what she taught. The first thing, when you are your buttons are pushed, you're affected by something. You ask the question, what kind of person would do that? You identify, what is it that's bothering you? Well, a person who is disrespectful or dismissive. We get triggered too when people judge us. You know, when we care what people think, we really don't. We only care if we agree with them. So that's another way of identifying shadow. What do I think they're judging of me? Oh, they think I'm a bitch. They think I'm rude. Okay. Then you go to step two, own it. Have I ever been that in the past, maybe presently, possible future, given the right scenario? Like, listen, we're not murderers, but somebody tries to kill me. I'm in self defense. I might kill somebody, right? Or might tries to kill my children or Right. So there might be a murderer in me. It's dormant. And I hope it stays dormant. But you see what I mean? There's that part. So when owning it, you you really have to get out of the ego. And this is why it takes a really good teacher to work with someone to help them see that maybe you're in a relationship with somebody who's disrespectful, dismissive, abusive, say you would never be that way. But then you turn it on yourself. Am I that way to myself? And if we got in someone's head, of course, they abuse, they talk, you know, disparagingly to themselves internally, they put themselves down, they, that's abusive, abuse is abuse, right? We can't say, oh, because they're doing it one way doesn't mean it's the same. It is, it's still the same quality. So using the example of disrespectful and dismissive, I would say, Oh, there's sometimes I'm disrespectful to little Jana, to my feeling self. She's feeling something and I'm like, let's have some wine. I don't want to deal with you right now. My emotions, that's abandoning. That's abusive to myself. It's disrespectful. So once you are willing to take responsibility, you know, then that step's not so hard. And then you turn to embracing, which is a third step. That's where you literally love and accept and I relate with it as a wounded child, the part of me that behaves acts out, you know, that's arrested, developed, that didn't develop because of the trauma from childhood. Maybe they're arrested, developed at three or four or six or 10 or 13. And these parts come out. Now we're an adult, but we're acting like an adult child. Mm -hmm. And then once you can love and accept and realize, oh, that's just Little Jana, she has reasons to act that way sometimes, bless her heart. And I love her and I need to go to her because I've been pushing her too hard work, 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 no fun, no play. And she acts out. I do something stupid and then I recoil and I'm mad at myself that I maybe drank too much or I, you know, I said something mean to somebody or I snapped and right. And that's the time where I take responsibility and that's the reparenting piece where I go in, connect with the little wounded child that's acting out and say, what am I doing that's making you feel this way and behave this way? Oh, well, you're telling me I'm an idiot. And you're telling me that, you know, you don't want to listen to me and you just want to work me all the time. You start to realize and you bond with yourself in such a deep, powerful, powerful way. And then when you bond with yourself, Dawn, it's like, You know it. It's a love, like self love. That's. It's not about ego or anything. It's just I always tell clients to get a picture of yourself. Like here's one of me, Mm. and I look so sad. You know, I'm at the park swinging, but I just look so. And I look at this, my heart just floods with what the pain of that child was going, and it's up to me to rescue her and give her the life she deserves. Mm. Now,
0: yeah. I love all of that. So do you think that that is the key? Like, I mean, obviously people struggle so much to overcome their trauma. Do you think shadow work is the key to that?
1: Oh, I I think it's huge because otherwise you go into blaming and that's how, you know, there's four ways we abandon ourselves and the way I was taught. One is stay in our head, analyze everything. Your feelings don't live in your head. They live in our body, right? Mm -hmm. Number two is we push ourselves harshly I do that perfectionism you know that's kind of my propensity I I that's when I'm abandoning my emotions I'm doing it by push 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 achieve 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 work 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 you know and then third is addictions you know substance process it could even be positive I'm going to meditate over it I don't want to feel right now. That's like the child's crying and you're like, just shut up. I'm I'm over here meditating, you know, like, or I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to go run. Like, no, if you're doing those things to, you know, not feel, it becomes an addiction to not feeling Mm. of course, drinking, sex, shopping, gambling, all of that. And then the last one is blaming. And this is what creates victimization, right? It's not my fault. I'm not taking responsibility. Other people did it to me. They hurt me. Certainly there has been times in my life where I was a victim, but how long I stayed in victimhood was up to me, my responsibility. Mm. So as soon as I made that shift and I started to realize that and looked at everything like this is earth school, I'm here to learn lessons. So everything that happened, I would ask, what's the lesson? And as soon as I began to ask the question, of course, the universe supported me, and everything started to orchestrate to show me, "Oh, here's the lesson: you're being a caretaker; you're putting other people's feelings above your own. That's why this happened." Or, you know, that kind of seems to be a reoccurring theme for me, anyway. And most people I talk to, you know, they they're in codependent relationships.
0: Mm. That's really simple, isn't it? Just to ask constantly, "What what is the lesson? What is the lesson?" And I I do do that myself but yeah I think a lot of people get a lot out of just asking that one question when you know throughout throughout the week whenever anything is changing when it whether there's kind of trauma or chaos or it's about the finding the lesson and and learning the lesson really right yeah It's, it's
1: beautiful yeah and then bless the test because soon as you Aware of the lesson, of course, you're going to get tested because that's what happens in school. Did you really get the lesson? Let's see, let's test her. So it's kind of like, you know, this imagery of like you're walking down a path, a road, and you fall into a hole. And it takes you a while to dig yourself out. And finally, when you dig yourself out, you're like, okay, I'm never going down that road again. Very next day, you go down it again, you fall in the hole, right? It's just like this repetitive. And then finally, you transcend the, to the point where you're like, you see it, you know, a mile away. There's that road with that hole. I'm not going over there, you
0: know? Yeah. Yeah. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've learned from some amazing teachers in your life. You've worked with Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, Joe Dispenza, Brian Weiss, Debbie Ford. What, what's the most important lesson that you think you've learned from, from those people?
1: Well, I'm going to just go with the first thing that came into my head. So I think it was like 2000, I was at the Chopra Center in 2007 and eight. I was with Deepak and he had just came back from Thailand and he, he was able to stay in a monastery for a month. He wanted to have an experience like a monk, shaved his head, begged for his food, you know, meditated, you know, I don't know, most of the day. They meditated on their death. And when he came out of that experience, he said, he said, he deduced everything to these three principles. He said, the most important moment is this moment to live this way, right? This moment right here, I'm present. This is the most important moment of my life. The person in front of me, you, is the most important person in my life in this moment. And what I'm doing right now is the most important thing that I'm doing in my life. Mm. So it's really about coming back to presence, right? And of course, Mm. Eckhart, I'm studying with him now to be a teacher of presence. It's a, it's a mind shift, you know, because I'm kind of an intellectual. I love studying. I love sharing knowledge and Eckhart is just present. There's no talking. Right. (laughs) All right. So that's, it's helpful, especially when you're working with people with trauma, a lot of trauma and they need safety. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, he would, the Buddhist monk, he would always say, you know, the most loving thing you can do is just listen. And mm. some people just need to be heard. And I'm a teacher, so it's hard for me. So it's kind of my next level in my journey is learning how to just be present.
0: Mm. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? it sounds so simple. <laughs> a big part of what you do is meditation, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So that was a game changer. So when people ask me if there's one thing for the listeners that you would say is the most important to think, please begin to meditate. It's more important than anything. I mean, what it does in our nervous system and the vagus nerve and it's just, you know, the health benefits. And for so many years I ran from it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, you know, just at one time I heard if you can't do nothing well how do you expect to do anything well and I thought when we meditate it looks like you're just sitting there doing nothing and then I think I was a a teacher about seven years when I came out of a practice one day and I and I just heard it so clear oh the purpose of meditation is to be aware when we're lost in thought because everybody who I've taught and I've taught almost a thousand students how to meditate they would say Oh, you know, I can't quiet my mind. That's a myth, right? You can't quiet the mind. But what you can do is just become aware when it's lost and bring it back. And it's a muscle you build. And if you do it with consistent practice every day, without fail, as you go about your day, you're going to become more aware when you're lost in stinking thinking, projecting into worst case scenarios as a future, rehashing the past. You're not present. Your life is here. It's happening right now. It's beautiful. The birds are chirping. The, you know, the life is happening here. It's like it's like Einstein said, right? There's only two ways to live life. One is though nothing's a miracle, the other is though everything is.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And you teach within an emotional healing system. What are the core concepts to that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I certainly didn't create it, you know, I just brought it all together. So the foundation is meditation because the foundation of emotional intelligence is self awareness. How do you create self awareness? Meditation is one of the best ways, right? Mindfulness practice. So the foundation is meditation. I teach psycho spirituality. So the emotional healing system is really a combination of psychology and spirituality. Now we know that there's a convergence of the two. We can't You go to a therapist, often top-down therapy, they give pills, they listen to your story for 50 minutes, it's never enough time, there's no real actions, they're not coaching you, they're not giving you tools, Right. right? Root cause, if we look at the deeper, you know, and so that's in the emotional healing system, Deepak would often say Western medicine practices quackery, because they're always looking at, you know, the symptoms and not the cause, and so... In this emotional healing system, of course, it was meditation. That was a game changer for me. The second is also in alignment with emotional intelligence skills, which is self-management or self-regulation. How can I regulate my emotions? So I teach the heart math, intelligent energy management techniques, super simple. So simple that I think often people dismiss it because it's so simple. It's so easy to do, right? Mm. So that's self-regulation. Of course, meditation is self-regulation too. So we have self-awareness, self-regulation with those two. Then I begin to teach them psychosynthesis. So psychosynthesis is this, you know, synthesizing our psyche, right? We have all these parts. They call it parts therapy now. So I bleed that into shadow work, Jungian shadow work and how we're one person, but we're like a big pizza pie with lots of slices, right? I have a happy self and a sad self and a mean self and a nice self and everything has an opposite, right? The shadow work. So we begin to teach them and then we take them through processes. So mirror work processes and, and, you know, hypnotherapy processes. So we're getting to root um, incidences that happen, like had a client at five, wanted to go didn't want to go swimming in a lake because she had never been in a lake and it was murky and she was scared and her parents made her do it and then she got the message my feelings don't matter because she was screaming and crying if it mattered they wouldn't have made me go in that lake right and so we had that she was 42 i had a great childhood i don't know why i'm not happy it's why i'm coming here for you to help me figure it out you know and what it was was the event at five years old and of course every experience she drew to her was one that could solidify and mirror back that belief. See, my feelings don't matter. My husband never listens to me. My kids don't listen to me. Well, really she didn't listen to her. She thought everybody else knew better. So she never advocated for herself. So that's a good example. So we go really back into deep core stuff in the emotional healing system. And then the next is reparenting, learning to be a healthy, loving adult, understanding core painful emotions that are part of being human can't get out without them understanding suffering is being caught up in stories about the pain and we make all of it up you know like create a story whether it's true or not and we run with it it's my story and I'm sticking to it even though it's killing us and so that's another you know piece of it and we do forgiveness work pono, pono you know the huna tradition I'm sorry please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. We teach clients that, and then we move them into envisioning and scripting out their life. If you read Wise Little One, I share my own script for my beloved. I attracted my husband now on a plane that I wasn't supposed to be on four days early that I got on this plane. I left a meditation retreat and lo and behold, sat next to my husband and now we're married and so you never know. You listen to that wise little one inside and they take you on a journey.
0: Wow, that's incredible. That work sounds amazing for anybody that's looking for that sort of healing. It just sounds incredible. And a a, a part of your book is about using our imagination to manifest the life of our dreams. What is the process that you teach that can help us to manifest our dreams?
1: So it's called the T-Tool and it's a three-part process tool. But the first step is, you know how sometimes people will say, I don't know what I want. Mm. I always say, oh, that's not true. You know exactly what you want because you know what you don't want, Mm. right? So we start with don't want. So let's say I'm doing my ideal relationship with myself and I want to get really clear about what kind of relationship do I want to have with me? Then I would go, well, I don't want to be insecure, judgmental of myself, you know, unattentive, push myself harshly, you know, I put, make a list of all the things I don't want. Then, well, what do you want? And just go to the opposite. I want to be attentive with myself. I want to be gentle with myself. I want to be uplifting and encouraging and secure within myself and confident. Okay. Then I have that list. Now I go over to script it. And it always begins with certain intro and certain bottom. So the the intro is, you know, I'm in the process of attracting and allowing all I need to do, know, and have to attract and allow my ideal relationship with myself. Affirmations are a thing of the past, old technology, because if we affirm something in present tense that isn't so, the inner child's like BS, you know, oh, I am debt-free and financially free and abundant, and i you know, can't pay my bills. But if I say a desire statement like this, when I envision being debt-free and having an abundance of material things, I feel at peace and joyful. So I took the, the intent with elevated emotion and created a statement. And that's what you do in the scripting. So when I envision being, you know, waking up every morning, connected to spirit, you know, loving my inner child, I feel really confident about my head life and where I'm headed. So then I make a bunch of these statements based on those first columns that do want column, then I write it out. And then I end it with something like, you know, the law, because it's a universal law of intention and desire has infinite organizing power in the universe, or God is orchestrating like a great conductor all that needs to happen to bring about my desires, this or something greater. And that's key because as soon as you attach to what you desire and it's not in your highest good, be careful what you pray for. Mm. You always detach. The law of detachment says this or something greater. I know the universe has my back. I just have to be clear what I want with it so that I can put it out into the field and it can find a match. Might not happen next week, next year. In the case of my ideal relationship with my partner, I created this statement while I was still married to my first husband, because I was always focused on what was wrong about him. And I thought, oh gosh, I need to do the work. I got to, well, what do I want? Oh, I want a partner like this. So I just kept, and I thought, well, maybe he'll show up and be that, but I'm just going to focus on what I want. And what happened is I outgrew him our frequencies started to sh- change and you know it just went in different directions and the universe took care of it and we're still amicable my my husband now and I just went to visit him in Mexico he lives there and we have a great relationship yeah. if anybody reads the book or when they read the book and they feel sorry for him because I frankly wasn't in love with him you know I loved him but he's very happy so he's good and we're good we have a great relationship
0: oh, that's 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 a beautiful, yeah. I love that that whole system that you you talked about there. If there was one thing that you would recommend to our listeners to start right now to heal, what would it be?
1: Meditate. <laughs> okay. It would be. I mean, it's just you know, my teacher. One of my teachers taught me RPM: rise, get up in the morning, empty your bladder, pee, meditate. Do it before you do anything. It is spiritual hygiene. Think you wouldn't think of leaving the house without brushing your teeth or your hair and dressing. The same holds true. And it's even more important because we're spiritual beings having this human material experience. And it's hard sometimes. But if you give yourself that gift of quality time of just sitting and being with yourself and just not no, just being a human being, not a human thinking or feeling or doing, just beings your day will take on a new quality. And when things trigger you, you won't be so reactive. You'll breathe and you'll say, oh, okay. You'll you'll have some distance from it because the meditation practice helps you regulate your emotions, regulate your nervous system. I think it's the most important thing. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, Dr. David Simon, he was a neurologist. He was Deepak's partner. He passed away. And Deepak both would say if they were diagnosed with like some terminal illness and they only had one thing they could choose to heal, it would be meditation. Oh, wow. That's how powerful wow. it is. Some of the, some of the Sorry. best research too, I just want to say to you is the TM organization, TM.org mm-hmm. for meditation. I mean, you know, cause sometimes I think people need to be enrolled in how powerful it is because they don't realize I'm just sitting doing nothing about how productive it is.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we've we've talked about your book, Wise Little One, throughout the podcast. Is there anything you, you want us to know about the book?
1: Well, it's my baby. <laughs> Writing a book isn't easy. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Especially sharing as much as I shared so transparently with the intention that the reader would say, okay, maybe she had a lot worse than I did and she continued on a path. There's hope for me or, you know, some kind of inspiring story, right. Giving some of the tools. Yeah. The book is definitely part of my legacy too. you know, to share with my own family. I broke a cycle, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm a cycle breaker. I was a disruptor in the family system that called out the dysfunction and made everyone uncomfortable. And By doing that, I've now raised a very healthy, emotionally intelligent woman. She's 30, almost 35. She has a son, my grandson, who's almost seven. He's very emotionally intelligent. She's married to a very emotionally intelligent man. So I broke the cycle and the book is my testament to that, I guess, you know. Mm,
0: Absolutely. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Breaking the cycle and (laughs) just looking and seeing what's coming after you, you know, all these beautiful, emotionally intelligent relationships. It's just so incredible. And Jana has kindly offered to give one lucky listener of the podcast a copy of her book, Wise Little One. If you'd like to receive that copy, click the link in the show notes, sign up to the Heal newsletter. Everyone who signs up this week will go into the draw. If you're already signed up to the newsletter, click the link in the show notes to my email and send an email headed jana wilson book draw and we will draw the winner on friday the 9th of june jana you also run emotional healing group experience can you tell us about that
1: yeah so i've been doing these retreats since 2004 they are just my passion i mean i love doing group work i had Experience in public speaking. So it was really a natural for me to, you know, go into a setting and really share what I know. But throughout the years, in 2004, I launched the retreat business. And of course, as we grow and evolve, everything grows and evolves. And so it's morphed in in 2010, we launched emotional healing retreats and the emotional healing system. The, the retreats is a subsidiary of the emotional healing system, but that's what we're teaching at the retreats. It's a five day, we do four a year, once a quarter, and people from all over the world come to them. The groups are usually under 50 people. I have a teacher training as well, a, a emotional healing teacher training, that people who have worked with me are eligible to enter. You have to have worked with me. It's the same work that I do privately, one-on-one, private work here at my home. I have a 2,600-square-foot healing center where people stay on property, but that's about 1500 us a day. So it can be pretty expensive. So we want ways to reach more people. So the book was, that was one of the reasons for the book. The other is an online retreat. We just finished filming. It should go live in June. June 1st is the target date. And it's like, you know, a 300 us you know, and it's, you have it for life. So it's an actual online course you own and you go through the retreat on your own. And then we have the group events and um, yeah, it's a passion for sure. It's my Dharma, my life's purpose.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It sounds so amazing. Where can we find you? Where can people find out about your book and your retreats?
1: Yeah. So Jana Wilson.com is the best place. And it'll say, if you want to work with Jana, you can click on that and it'll send you over to emotional dot on Instagram. I'm also emotional healing retreats and yeah, I would love to have any followers or anyone, you know, let me know that you heard me on Dawn's podcast for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah well, please go ahead and I'll put those links in the show notes, go ahead and click on those, go and find out about everything that Jana is doing. And Jana, thank you so much. Your story is, your story is incredible. And I just, Oh, you're just a beautiful, beautiful teacher. And I'm so honored to have sat with you today and heard your story. Thank you for sharing so much. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much for having me on here and, I'd love to spend more time with you and get to know all about you and your work as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode If you're on Instagram, follow me at mybigloveproject and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.